Ladies and gentlemen, this is Kim Greenhouse. I just had a marvelous trip to Europe where I visited Switzerland, England, and the south of France. I had an opportunity to meet with some very interesting people all throughout my time there. The people that received me all over were very gracious. It was a great learning experience. During that time, we replayed four segments, Crisis by Design, Understanding the Federal Reserve, A Banking System Built on Trust, and Meet the Quants. We had interviewed Terry Duyon, the founder of B&B Structured Finance, a few years ago with Ellen Brown. We talked about credit default swaps and derivatives. It was a pretty extensive interview, which you may want to listen to. This interview was live in London, and it was about her book, How the Trading Floor Really Works. And if you really want to understand anything about finance from an insider who actually traded for many years, this is the interview you want to listen to. And most of us are very angry about derivatives and credit default swaps and the shenanigans that goes on in a lot of the financial markets. This interview will engage you, and for some of you, it will infuriate you. But I want you to know that there's gold in this interview. There are treasures here to be listened for. I would like to thank Bob and Jewel Howers, the founders of the Sterling Hut, for sponsoring this interview in London. Please go to the Sterling Hut, the Sterling, S-T-E-R-L-I-N-G, hut.com. You will also find it on the right-hand side of its rainmakingtime.com, where our sponsors and advertisers are. They have a wonderful company and offer a huge array of silver and sterling silver products. So don't forget to go to the sterlinghut.com and enjoy the interview. This was actually in person and way more intimate than the first interview we did together. Enjoy and welcome to its rainmaking time. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Kim Greenhouse. We're live with Terry Duyon in London at the Landmark Hotel, beautiful hotel. We're here to talk about Terry's new book, How the Trading Floor Really Works. I interviewed Terry a few years ago. She's the founder of B&B Structured Finance and one of the very few women in this field of finance who understand the big picture and is able to provide a context for derivatives and all types of financial products and is going to illuminate today not only how the trading floor really works, but to give us an education because I think that even many of us in finance don't understand this body of work. And those of us out of finance are upset and angry and have a lot of things mixed up about what's really going on in finance. We don't understand there's a distinction between the debt and equity markets. We don't understand capital markets and emerging markets the difference between bonds and loans, public and private equity, banks as financial intermediaries, and derivatives. It is with great pleasure that I welcome Terry Duyon to its rainmaking time. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Again, well, <laughs> I should say, it's, it's great to see you again. Now, I will tell everybody that Terry thought I was 20 years old because of my voice, and when she met me in London, she really didn't think that was me, but I told her that I'm really 35, so she's feeling much better about things. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> apparently I have a young voice. So well, I hope good. I have a young voice as well. <laughs> yeah, you do. Actually, though, you do sound more senior than me. You have a great voice, actually. So official. I think I should have you introduce It's Rainmaking Time. Let's take it from the top. <laughs> Go ahead. Let's hear you say it. Well, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be here with you. 
Thank you so much. <laughs> Let's talk about the book that's in production. Now, I noticed you said, Kim, focus on the gray boxes. They're the fun bits. You did do these gray boxes that were anecdotes and really fun bits. And I wanted to talk about the time that you went in and got fired. There was a job that you were let go of that I thought was very funny. Do you remember which one? My, yes. So maybe when I was first trying to interview and, yes, and get yes, into yes. the markets. Um, talk about so, that. That was funny. Although the book is nonfiction, I wanted to bring it alive with all of these stories. You know, the, the thing about finance is that often people get lost in the technicalities, the vocabulary, you know, what sounds like a, a very complex space, but they forget that at the end of the day, there's a lot of people involved and people behave in bizarre ways. And so there's a bunch of funny stories about, you know, what the people in finance actually do on a day-to-day -day basis. And I wanted to bring it alive for people. I wanted to make it real. So it's not just a bunch of facts and figures. It's actually the story of the people that are there. I was at MIT. I had a, um, I was about to graduate with a math degree, and I was going through the interview process. And I didn't know a lot about Wall Street. I grew up in Louisiana, so Wall Street was a very long way from <laughs> my world. And I remember when I even said that I was thinking about interviewing on Wall Street, and my family were, there was a bit of, what does that really mean? Is she going to be a stockbroker? Is she going to you know, be a teller at a bank? What, what does that really mean? And when I did my first interview, I got asked immediately, and it was the interview was with um, an institution on Wall Street. They were famous for being really smart. They were options traders, actually, and they were, they were well-known for being just brilliant, very smart guys. And I went into my interview and I sat down and I thought, you know, I'm smart. I can do this. I can manage this. And he asked this question and it's embarrassing when I tell it today because most people, as they're listening to the story, they think, oh, okay, I can figure that out. That, that makes total sense. But when you're under the gun and you're young and you're, you're not sure what to expect in your first interview, it can be quite deer in headlights is how I felt. And so he picked up a pencil or whatever it was and he says, make me a market for this pencil. I was like, what is he talking about? Make me a market. What? Didn't even know. The language he was using was really strange, and he hadn't even really introduced himself. I mean, we hadn't even had that get-to-know-you five seconds. And he says, uh, you know, make me a market for this pencil. I said, I'm not 100% sure what you're asking. And he said, well, where would you buy this pencil from me, or where would you sell this pencil? And I was like, why would I buy that pencil? What, what are you talking about? He said, well, what's the price of this pencil? I said, I don't know. I didn't buy that. <laughs> I didn't even know what you're talking about. And he said, okay, forget that let's play a game. I'm going to roll a die and every time whatever number comes up on the die, I'm going to pay you. So what are you going to pay me to play that game? And I said, pay you to play a game. I mean, at this point I was really deer in headlights. <laughs> what, what is he asking? What is he talking about? Pay him to play this game. And he said, well, look, there's no zero on a die, right? On a die. So you're going to, at a minimum, I'm going to pay you a dollar. So at least you're going to pay me a dollar to play the game. I said, yes, I'll pay you a dollar to play the game. And he says, well, would you pay me $2 to play the game? I said, yes. You know, just wanting to feel positive and <laughs> strong and, you know, move forward with wherever we were going. And he said, would you pay me $3 to play this game? And at this point, my brain had finally caught up to the conversation. I knew where we were going. I knew how to get to the answer, but I was so underwater at this point. I said, yes, I would pay you 3 He said, would you pay me 4 I said, yes. And he said, why? Now, at this point, I knew. I knew I had made a mistake. Because the right answer was three and a half, but I said four. So obviously I was overpaying for this particular game. And he said, um, why? And I thought, I'm going to brazen this out. And I said, because I feel lucky. <laughs> he oh, said, um, well, thank you very much for that and good luck. And that was about five minutes. What did you say to him? 
I said, can I get your card and maybe send you a, a follow-up, you know, email or letter? He said, that's not necessary. Bye. <laughs> and, and he just so dismissed me out of hand. And he did that as we were walking out of the room in front of the whole long line of other MIT students who were waiting to interview with him. And it became a bit of a story on campus about how completely he brushed me off <laughs> in front of all these other people. And the funny thing was, the story wasn't about how stupid this girl must have been in her interview. It was more about aggrandizing how big and strong these individuals were who had the ability to just brush you off <laughs> so publicly and that it was actually okay and in fact encouraged because it lent itself to the story of Wall Street, you know, this power place. I learned a lesson, which was don't go to an interview without the vocabulary that you need to get yourself through it. And of course, 20 years ago, it's not like there was all of this information on the internet. How would you have known the answer though? How would you have known the answer you know, to something like that? Isn't it an inside understanding? No, well, the question he was asking is something that actually being a mathematician, having studied math at MIT, I should have been able to, to work out very quickly. But the way he phrased it and the terminology he used were so foreign to me that I felt underwater as soon as we started the conversation. And I kept trying to come up for air, sure that I knew how to do this. Like, I know how to swim, but somehow he's throwing me, you know, these waves keep coming and washing over me with all of this vocabulary, but I know how to swim, so why can't I swim? What made you stay in the industry after you went through something like that? Well, yes, it was a little humiliating. Um, it's funny with hindsight. In fact, when I first wrote the book and I put that story in there, I put it in as a neutral story. I didn't say I was the person being interviewed. I just put it in as a story. So this happened to a person. And when I asked somebody in the industry who knew me to read the book and do a quick edit for me of just factual content. He immediately came back and he sent me an email and he said, that first story is brilliant. Where were you interviewing? What university were you conducting the interview? He actually thought I was the person. Oh my God, that's funny. Who kicked out. The, and I said, no, no, no. Actually, <laughs> I said it was me at MIT. I was, I was the undergrad. And he said, you're kidding. He said, you must personalize it because what you need to let people know is that first off, when you're interviewing, when you're trying to get a job in finance, you're not necessarily going to know it all and you're going to have some stumbling blocks. He said, and even having an experience like that, you've gone on and you've learned, you've been successful, you understand the space. He said, that is a great story to personalize because it says it's okay to fail on your first try. And, and so I did. I thought his advice was great. And so I personalized the story. And I, I thought, as I was doing it, I thought, gosh, am I going to, am I going to embarrass myself by doing this? You know, Actually, am I, gonna I look thought ridiculous? it was fresh. I thought it was really, really, I liked the innocence about it. I mean, I could feel the texture of you as a younger person going in and answering in an innocent way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, you really lost your innocence there. Yeah. Basically, and the funny thing is that that particular story, because it's the intro to the whole book, has really grabbed people. And lots of people have come back to me and said, oh, I laughed so hard. That was just... And in fact, somebody else said, um, you know, I've sent this book on to 
my son, he's graduating from college. I want him to know, you know, look at this interview story, you know, arm himself. And it's just, you know, experience. You learn from experience. And what I'm helping people do is learn from my experience. Talk a little bit about B&B Structured Finance. So we bring the audience up to speed with what you do. So I spent 10 years trading derivatives on Wall Street, basically. Wall Street and here in London, we call it the city. So I spent my time both in New York as well as London, um, primarily with J.P. Morgan. And after 10 years on the trading floor, I then created a business called B&B Structured Finance, and we provide training and expert consulting work. Um, and the training is basically education programs for a lot of the analysts, the new hires that are just joining the banks, the asset managers, and they need to learn the things they're not taught in university. We come in and teach them very specifically the, about the financial markets. Um, sometimes it's a two-week program. Sometimes it's a four-week program. Sometimes we do just continuing ed for people within the banks, within the asset managers, just you know, as people um, work within finance for a few years, they realize there's some bits that they don't particularly understand, but they also know that they need to understand them. So they, there's a lot of continuing ed that these large institutions provide. And actually, it's very valuable. The funny thing is, when I was on the trading floor at J.P. Morgan, I had no idea what the word L&D stood for. And it's, it stands for learning and development. And it's often part of the, um, the HR function. And it's about, you know, continuing education for professionals. And I wasn't even aware that there was an industry around learning and development because on the trading floor, how, why would we go to anyone else to learn something? You know, you either know it or you don't, or you're creating it. You're on the forefront of the industry. Um, and that was a bit of arrogance on our part, which was there's always something to learn from someone else. And there are lots of people that can help. Um, either they have different areas of expertise in particular products or even, you know, more soft skills like, you know, presentation or um, speaking, you know, public speaking skills or how to present ideas and um, communication and working in a team, these sorts of things. So there's all there's a whole world of learning and development, which... Um, which has been fascinating. And we provide the what we call the hard skills, which are the financial products, introductions to how the financial markets work, what derivatives are, the different, um, the different financial products in the markets, who the clients are, what they're doing, why they're doing it. We introduce a lot of terminology and we provide that training to a lot of the banks and a lot of the um, investors in financial markets. When I read your book, it was the first time that my head spun at how large the matrix of finances and how diversified in all these different aspects there are. I mean, to have written this book, you have to really know what's going on. And I was thinking that this book really should be required reading for people that want to be in finance. I actually probably couldn't have written it eight, nine years ago when I was sitting on the trading floor, even after 10 years on the trading floor, because I didn't have the big picture. You know, often when people are sitting in their job and they're doing a particular function, it's a, they have a very narrow view. The best description I can give is, is if a process goes from A to Z, often people are working on A to B and they don't even realize that C, D, E, that all of those bits of the process also exist. 
Um, and when I wrote this book, it was after eight, nine years of trying to teach people not just about you know financial products, but about where those financial products sit in the world of finance and how the world of finance works. And what became clear is that people had very, what we call domain expertise. Yeah. They are absolute experts in their domain, but their domain is actually one piece of a much bigger puzzle. And what I wanted to give people was the, the picture on that puzzle. Like, okay, so your domain is the little shoe, <laughs> but actually when you put the whole picture together, look, it's, you know, it's a picture of, you know, a child playing, whatever the, you know, the whole picture is this and your shoe fits in here and this is why and this is how. And um, I've gotten so many emails from people since I've, since the book has come out it, just a few months ago, I've gotten so many emails from people just saying, I finally get it. People who have worked in the industry for years, I finally get it. I can't believe, why didn't I have this book when I first started? It would have made so much more sense. Not just, you know, part of the what the book does is it's meant to demystify. Oh, it definitely the, you does. You know, the financial markets and the trading floor. It's meant to say, look, here's a bunch of lingo. Here's a bunch of vocabulary. This is how people talk. These are the words they use. This is This is what all of this means. And it tries to demystify it. And so, you know, when you read this book, it's just about basically, you know, pulling the curtain back and saying, this is what's going on. And um, so providing that big picture also requires a bit of vocabulary, um, you know, education and, you know, breaking down the vocabulary and just making it accessible, making it something that people can actually read without having spent years and years in finance. Um, so the feedback's been great. It's it's been pretty exciting. What led you into becoming a trader? Like, what was the allure for you? How were you moved to do that? Well, the the world of finance, um, you know, the world of Wall Street. When I was at MIT and there were interviews going on, the interviews fell into two categories. One was sales and trading. So that was the financial markets trading floor activity. And the other was often called investment banking or corporate finance. Again, this is where terminology is very funny. But the difference was that if you were in sales and trading, you were part of the markets. You were looking at financial products and financial prices and you know the stock market and prices going up and down and currencies and bonds and interest rates and all of these products. If you were in the world of corporate finance or um, often called investment banking, you were in a world of mergers and acquisitions and advising companies on, you know, whether they should buy someone else, whether they should issue more shares, whether they should issue more debt. You know, it was more advisory working with the end corporate, the end client. Um, and those two worlds were so different to me. And finance was fascinating to me because I had a math degree. I felt that I was comfortable with numbers. Finance is ultimately about numbers and they were, it's a natural space for me to be in. And when I looked at those two worlds, one was, and this is a very naive characterization, but from a, you know, I was, what I was 20, 21 years old. When I looked at those two worlds, the world of corporate finance was about people wearing suits and going to lunch and knowing which fork to use and having sophisticated conversations um, and being very proper and conservative. 
And the world of finance, when I, you know, talked to people was just, it was like a playground. You know, it, it was hugely high energy, people running around and shouting and, um, you know, high excitement. And you didn't go to lunch and you didn't know, need to know which fork to use when you went to lunch because you didn't go to lunch. And, you know, for me, the concept of even pretending that I knew which fork to use because um, that's not how I grew up <laughs> would have been really stressful <laughs> and a little dull for me. It didn't feel, I didn't sense the excitement that, that the, the trading floor, the trading floor felt so high energy. You know, I would even go and visit and see these people running around, the screens, the numbers moving up and down, the shouting, the the energy levels were so high. Um, and I was drawn to that. I mean, it was just such a, an obvious place for my personality. Now, then when I got to the trading floor, I then had another decision to make, which is the, the two main roles that they're often recruiting for. You can be a, a trader or you can be a salesperson. And um, part of that decision-making process for me was perhaps a little bit odd, but when I went onto the trading floor, what I immediately noticed is that there were almost no women, and certainly there were no female traders. And the women that were on the trading floor were often in sales roles. And I thought, well, that's, you know, I'm not going <laughs> to, I don't want to be slotted. I don't want to be slotted into a, a box because I'm a woman. I, I want to be able to do, you know, anything I want to be able to do. And, and part of me said, you know, I'm going to be a trader. <laughs> because that's there aren't any women here and I'm going to and I'm going to do this. I can do this. And and they were they're different skill sets. You know, the the trader is about managing risk, taking risk, managing risk, making prices, you know, quick thinking. It's a very instinctual. Maybe instinct. For some people it's instinctual. For others for other people it's a more thoughtful process and it and it just depends on what product you're trading and and where you're sitting. Um the salesperson was about um again relationship management. It's also a very technical role to, you know, to work in financial markets. It's a very technical space. You need to be numeric. You need to be comfortable with numbers and, and products, but your key added value is about call, you know, being able to have a, a relationship with the, the bank's clients. Um, and so to some extent, again, looking at my personality, I thought, well, I can manage relationships. I think I might be good at that. But actually, I love the the challenge of taking risk and managing risk and putting prices and, you know, that excitement and stress and um, and fun. And so I chose to be a trader as opposed to a salesperson. Does one become a trader on the ground? Are you trained to be a trader or do you emerge as a trader and just know what to do? No, there's no program. There's no... Um, you know, you don't get an MBA and become one thing versus something else. Um, there's no education that you can get other than, I mean, the best education to be in finance period is, is to sit on the trading floor itself. Um, you learn a lot from sitting there. It's like the, you know, the concept of, um, uh, not an internship, but the word I'm looking for is, um, apprentice, like an apprenticeship to some extent, I think, being a trader is something that you learn from having more senior people around you who are mentoring you and teaching you because it's a very, very specific little world. So I was hired directly. You know, I was hired to be in the 
analyst program at J.P. Morgan. And then from the analyst program, we were assigned roles. And I had expressed a strong interest to do derivatives trading. And after having been hired by J.P. Morgan, I was then interviewed again by the interest rate swaps desk to be on that desk. And so I had gone through more than one process to get there. But um, I was junior. There are particular products that aren't very risky that are often traded by junior people. And you start off doing a bunch of the little things, often getting coffee (laughs) as well as one of your roles. And then you slowly are given more responsibility over time. To be fair, like any job, you know, any job you start at the bottom and you work your way up. Um, You are called a trader from day one, but your scope and your knowledge and your ability to take risk and make decisions about risk for the firm initially is very small and grows over time. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. No matter what the state of the economy is, there will always be time-honored traditions and special events. The Sterling Hut has been in business since 2008, offering a wide range of fantastic sterling silver products, including finely crafted mint julep cups, personalized baby shower gifts, photo albums, exquisite jewelry boxes and awards, and so much more. The Sterling Hut is an authorized Silver Star international reseller of fine silver products and anniversary gifts. The business is owned by Jewel and Bob Howard. If you would be interested in buying someone a gift of pure sterling silver or sterling plated silver, you can call 1-888-819-1009. Get a 15% discount by going to the Sterling Hut, the Sterling, S-T-E-R-L-I-N-G, Hut, H-U-T, dot com, and saying it's rainmaking time. They will honor a 15% discount for you. Beautiful sterling silver gifts for all of life's occasions. Manufactured in Italy and handcrafted by skilled artisans. They can also be engraved in sterling picture frames, oval and rectangular silver trays, champagne ice buckets, silver goblets, coffee and tea service, coffee pots, silver mugs, candelabras, and silver jewelry unrivaled in design and style. Go to the Sterling Hut at sterlinghut.com. And back to the show. A great deal of the American public, I can't speak about the UK public, but the American public is very upset with the word derivatives, very upset with their functioning their place in finance, their place in the crash, both the mystery surrounding it, which we talked about in the earlier segment we did. For many people, derivatives are considered a weapon of mass destruction. Now, the truth is somewhere in between, right, with everything. So maybe you can just explain to the public what a derivative is and what attracted you to being interested in trading derivatives. What I understood when I was first um, going through the interview process when I was still at MIT is that the, the world of finance was a constantly evolving place. And one of the things that was particularly in some very early evolution were, was the world of derivatives and that it was a, a growing, a fast-paced, growing and evolving space. And that was very appealing. 
for me. It just sounded exciting. Something again that was um, where it was something because it was evolving, it was growing, it was something that I could become a part of and help influence where it was going to some extent. Again, starting off as a very junior person and eventually making my way up. But um, I think it's very attractive to be part of a business that is growing and evolving. And I think, you know, most people can identify with that. So that was, that was the decision for me. Now, in, in terms of, in terms of derivatives themselves and what they are, um, you know, to take two examples, big examples of events that occurred during the, the crisis and just put them in context, Lehman Brothers and the AIG bailout. Um, so the Lehman Brothers bankruptcy had nothing to do with derivatives. You know, Lehman Brothers ran out of cash, right? Mm-hmm. Um, AIG, again, took a bunch of risk that they didn't hedge. They made a bet. They took a huge amount of risk. They made a bet and it went wrong. Um, and at the end of the day, neither of those was, you know, the, 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 the root cause of those two situations does not necessarily point to the fact that derivatives exist. Um, so, and I know that's, I'm sure that'll be a possibly a controversial statement because someone's going to say, oh, but, you know, Lehman's traded a bunch of derivatives and AIG took on a lot of risk. A lot of the risk they took on was using derivatives. But um, the, 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 dis, the, the usage of derivatives is, originates primarily to mitigate risk. Now, everybody says, well, that's, I mean, that's ridiculous. They're about, you know, they're about increasing risk. Well, that's, that's not totally true. It's about mitigating risk, or in other words, transferring risk from one place to another. So a lot of corporates have risk to financial market prices, and they use derivatives to mitigate that risk. And in what they do to mitigate that risk is using derivatives, they pass the risk that they have onto someone else, in most cases to a bank. And that, for example, if you imagine a very large corporate who has operations in a, you know, a variety of countries and they've got revenue coming in in one currency but expenses in another currency, right? And if the currency rate, if the rate of exchange between those two currencies changes, they could either make a lot of money because their revenues now are much bigger than their cost, or they could lose a lot of money because their cost is now much bigger than their revenue. Um, And so that's something that a corporate wants to manage because their job is not to take that risk. Their job is to, you know, produce widgets, whatever they're producing. Um, And they're not supposed to make or lose money as a function of the currency rate. And so they can go to a bank and they can say, look, for the next year, these are our inflows and outflows in these different currencies. I need to fix the rate of exchange, you know, for the next year. Every month I've got this much coming in, this much going out. I need to fix the rate of exchange. Can you do that for me? And the bank says, yes. And that's a derivative. They have now executed a contract where the bank takes one currency when the company receives it and exchanges it for another um, in the future or forward. We would call that a forward product <laughs> or a future product or even an option. I mean, there's a bunch of different terminology based on the exact structure of it. But the point is that it's a transfer of risk from the corporate to the bank. 
Um, now, at the same time, there are many market participants who use derivatives to take risk. In other words, to make bets, to speculate. And um, mostly, that's not a bad thing. Mostly, that actually is good because it means that if the corporate wants to transfer risk you know, away from its balance sheet, there's someone on the other side who actually wants to make that bet. And so it, the word we use, again, I hate using terminology, but the word we use is liquidity. It means that there are more people out there who are interested in taking the risk from the corporate. Um, and it makes it cheaper and easier for the corporate to transfer that risk. Um, and so at the end of the day, the fundamental driver for why derivatives exist and how they work is mostly about risk management. Um, and, you know, where, where the financial markets, where it all went wrong, was not about the product itself, but actually about the judgment. And around the, you know, again, another terminology, but around risk management. So people have to decide, individuals decide how much risk they're willing to take. Individuals decide when they, you know, they make decisions subjective, they use their judgment about how much risk is in a particular product, how much risk they want to take, how many, how much reserves they need to put against that risk, how much capital they need to put aside. Um, and a lot of what happened during the bull market, so let's say 2004, 2005, 2006, was that, frankly, you couldn't go wrong in the financial markets. If you remember, the stock market's going up, house prices going up, you know, the unbelievable excitement about how much money you could make in the financial markets, right? You could just never lose money. It was all going in the same direction. Everybody was making money. Everybody was feeling more wealthy. And the concept that there was risk <laughs> in some of these products was was just brushed off. How, there's no risk. We're all made, you know, it's a brave new world. There are no more business cycles. You know, prices don't go up and down, up and down, up and down. They just go up. That's, you know, it's all up. And I think a lot of people got caught up in just this unbelievable sense of euphoria. And to use the phrase that Alan Greenspan used and, you know, like him or hate him, the, the phrase is actually quite valuable, but irrational exuberance. You know, there was just irrational exuberance about the markets and people took risk irrationally and didn't didn't put enough capital against that risk didn't make some judgments some subjective judgments about that risk that needed to be made and in fact if you look at a lot of the analysis that was done about the credit crisis and some of the decisions that were made particularly within the banking sector um, you know a lot of the regulators have done a bunch of assessments they all ultimately say it comes down to judgment comes down to judgment. You can, you know, you can, um, risk is something that you have to understand, you have to have experience in, and you have to be, you have to make a judgment. You know, you have to use experience and, um, you have to be, um, aware of the risk you're taking. And I think a lot of, you know, a lot of decisions were very irrational during that time period. You make a lot of distinctions, for example, about the debt and equity markets that are relational to where derivatives fall, where they fit. Can you talk about the debt and equity markets and just kind of lay that out? 
Yeah, so the two main financial markets and the two big distinctions we make in the financial markets are between, um, very simply, shares and debt or loans or bonds. And shares are ownership in companies. And most of us are familiar with you know, the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ or the Dow Jones. Those are share prices. That's ownership in particular in, in private companies. And then on the other side, you have the debt markets, or the, we also call them the fixed income markets. They are, um, they are markets made up of bonds and loans. And the most common bonds and loans that people are aware of, or the most common bonds that people are aware of, are the treasury bonds, the treasury market. The U.S. government, as we all know today, because we can't seem to stop talking about the debt ceiling, um, the U.S. government is the biggest issuer of debt in the world. And while a lot of Americans are very concerned about this, and I think rightly so, there's, there is a lot to be, to be um, concerned about in, in that particular situation, the, the flip side is that the U.S. Treasury market, so that's the debt market that where the U.S. government borrows money, is the foundation of the financial market. It is, it is the biggest financial product that exists, you know, the U.S. Treasury market. It is the most liquid financial product. That means it trades the most often. There's always a price. It is denominated in dollars, which is the world's reserve currency, and it is considered a safe haven for every investor in the world. When things are, when you're worried about the global economy, when you're worried about, you know, any major market moves, the treasury market is where you go. And so um, that is the debt market. That's the foundation of the debt market. And the treasury market, what the, the debt market gives us is an indication of where interest rates are, what it costs to borrow money. Because what we say in the debt markets is wherever the U.S. government borrows money, is the lowest possible rate that anybody in the world can borrow money in dollars because the U.S. government is the best borrower in the world. They're never going to default. And so anybody else that wants to borrow dollars has to pay more than what the U.S. government pays. So whatever interest rates the U.S. government pays to borrow, we all pay something a little higher than that because we are more risky than the U.S. government. We will default. We have the probability of default while the U.S. government doesn't. Do you believe that? <laughs> well, I mean, is, I know that's the cultural motif, but do you personally? Well, the concept of riskless, which is what we used to say the U.S. government was, is a funny one. And I think what we now say today is that risk is relative. It's not that some entities are risk-free and others are risky. It's just that some entities are less risky than others. And I think the fact is that because the U.S. government is allowed to borrow as much as they want any time because they are the world's reserve, the U.S. dollar is the world reserve currency, the U.S. Treasury is the world's safe haven. And ultimately that rests upon the U.S. economy, right? So it is, it, it's, it's, a simplified way of saying it is that the, that investors around the world believe that the U.S. economy is strong and robust, um, but ultimately it is a safe haven for the world. And so there are many countries who have a limit to how much they can borrow. 
And if they want to go back and borrow more money, the markets say, no, 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 that's not, that's too much. We're not comfortable with that. You're borrowing too much. We don't think you can pay that back. Whereas the U.S. government has never had a failure. We've never, the U.S. government has never gone and said, hey, I want to borrow this much, and nobody bought it. That's never happened. So to some extent, there's no natural barrier <laughs> to, to, the, to the U.S. government that says, hey, guys, you've got you've to gotta balance this budget because you can no longer borrow. No one's actually saying that. Um, and so as long as the markets believe that the U.S. government is solvent, solvent the U.S. government can borrow as much as they want. It's a virtuous cycle, if you see what I mean, because at the point where the markets believe the U.S. government is not solvent is when it all goes badly wrong. But, you know, at the moment, if you're looking around and you're saying, well, who else is as stable as the U.S. government and the U.S. economy and who is big enough to support the world of investors that exists, there aren't a lot of other options. Um, people look at the Swiss government. People look at the Norwegian government, but neither of those economies are big enough and they don't issue enough debt to sustain the interest in having money invested in a safe haven. And so, you know, for a long time after the euro was introduced, people said, oh, the European, you know, the euro is going to be um, a reserve currency and European debt is going to help to balance the fact that we all rely upon the U.S. Treasury market. And unfortunately, that hasn't panned out. I think we've, you know, we've seen that destabilize and become much more risky than we are prepared to sustain. And so we're back to the U.S. Treasury as being the, the world's safe haven. Talk a little bit about LIBOR. I know you brought it up in the book and, you know, we've had a big scandal in the last year. And many, many people don't understand the LIBOR interest rate and how it works. Explain it to the public. So LIBOR is, um, you know, when you say, well, when you say to somebody, what is LIBOR, they often rattle off the what LIBOR stands for. And they say, oh, well, that's the London Interbank Offered Rate or the London Interbank Borrowing Rate. And the fact is that that's not particularly meaningful for anybody. Uh, you know, it's great that you know what it means, that what it stands for, but what does it really mean? And um, it's basically, it's the interest rate where banks are willing to lend to each other. So it's, um, it's where J.P. Morgan's willing to lend to Citibank, and it's where Citibank's willing to lend to Barclays, and it's where Barclays is willing to lend to um, Bank of America, and it's where Bank of America is willing to lend to Wells Fargo, and so on and so forth. It's about where banks are willing to borrow or lend money with each other. And um, that's used to be a very active and very liquid market, meaning something that, you know, billions and billions and billions were traded every day between the banks. And if you think about it, what a bank does all day long is it gives out cash and it takes in cash. And at the end of the day, the amount of cash that a bank has or the amount of cash that a bank needs could be different every day, um, just based on what their clients are doing. And so... At the end of the day, if a, bank's, if a bank needs cash, it needs to go to another bank to borrow cash. It might just be for overnight until the next day, or it might be for two months, or it might be for three months, whatever the, but it's very short term. And, um, you know, so if there's one bank that needs cash and another bank that has cash, then they, they help each other in a way. So the bank that has all this extra cash lends it out, 
The bank that needs it borrows it, and that's how it works. That's the LIBOR market. Now, the interesting thing about this scandal is um, is how how many people seemed to have been involved. For me, that's the big surprise. Um, it's not a surprise that someone would try to manipulate a market. I think there are always people who are prepared to take more risk and behave in a way that, um, uh, uh, you know, most of the rest of us, I think, would say is unacceptable. There's always going to be somebody who wants to take that risk. But what was more surprising to me was not that one person was prepared to do that, but m- multiple people within certain organizations were involved and not just within certain organizations, but across organizations, <laughs> that they were actually prepared to collude with each other is pretty surprising. That, that for me was a surprise. Now, because I traded interest rates, I traded interest rate derivatives for a few years, um, I tried to think back and I thought, you know, I traded interest rate derivatives. I actually traded a derivative of LIBOR. Mm-hmm. Um, did I even know at the time the person who set LIBOR at J.P. Morgan? We were one of the biggest interest rate swap houses out there. Did, did I even know who that guy was? I was trying to think. I, I didn't even know who he was. I was sitting in New York. He was must have been sitting in London because that's where it, it gets set. It would have gotten set before I even came in in the morning, um, you know, because it's set at 11 o'clock, 11 a.m. London time. So it's set before I even got to my desk. I, I didn't even know who it was. And I was trying to... You know, imagine how those conversations would have gone where one person decides he's going to try and push it in one direction or another and gets an, and, and actually feels comfortable enough to voice that concept to another person <laughs> sitting next to him. And, you know, what that says, and it's something that I've always known about the financial markets, is that every institution is different. And, and institutions change over time as well. Um, and, and I'm talking about the culture within them. There are some institutions who are much more comfortable taking more risk than others. And, um, you know, so I guess that kind of conversation can, when I think about it, can only occur in a place where it's okay to take risks like that. And that's not totally fair, but, you know, how I, you know, the risk culture and the risk management of an institution drives how people behave. And um, in, a, in a place where it's okay to take risks, I guess pushing the envelope in some cases happens. Now, you know, at the same time, uh, I don't know a lot about the individual, the, all the individual situations, but I know that in some banks there were people saying, you know, sending emails to compliance saying, hang on, something's going on here, and I know this is wrong. So it also gives you a sense that there's some conflicting culture within some of these institutions where some guys, it was okay to behave in a certain way and somebody else looking on saying, hey, uh-uh, that doesn't work, that's wrong. So then, you you, you know, it's, it's hard to reconcile what's going on within the institution broadly. Um, but it's certainly been fascinating to watch mm-hmm. <laughs> it unfold. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Hi, everybody. I just want to take a minute or two and share with you that we really appreciate you listening and sharing with your friends and loved ones and colleagues. And if you like the show, show it. Write something really cool, really nice on It's Rainmaking Time at iTunes. We have our own store there. 
and like our Facebook page. If you haven't signed up for the newsletter, feel free to do that. We send a bi-monthly newsletter out. And if you like it, share it with all your friends. Another thing we wanted to share with you is that somebody stepped in and started to do transcriptions for us. We have some transcriptions already done. If you would be interested, please drop us a line. We will be posting the transcriptions that are ready for sale. That's another way to assist the show. And for those of you who are in a position to donate $10 a month or $20 a month or more, please do so. Action speaks louder than words. We appreciate you. And thanks again for listening to It's Rainmaking Time. And back to the show. What is the distinction between capital and emerging markets? And why did you feel it was important to tell us? we... We talk about in the financial markets. We talk about um, we talk about different asset classes, and we say, well, there's your fixed income markets. That's primarily your debt, your interest rate markets. There's your equity markets. That's where we trade the shares. There are your commodities markets, um, where we trade physical product like oil and gold and um, corn and cotton. Um, and then there are your emerging markets, which are based in, which are markets which um, sit in particular countries where they are comprised of each of those other asset classes. There, you know, there's an emerging market in, you know, in Latin America, which is comprised of the, the, the shares for companies based in Latin America, which is debt for companies and countries based in Latin America, which are um, you know, currencies around Latin America. Um, but most investors, when they, you know, most investors around the world, the institutional investors, the big corporate investors, are often focused on um, mostly Western world economies and financial products. And it's primarily because historically those have been the most stable in terms of, you know, there's always a business cycle, but it's not a a massive boom and bust cycle, despite what we've just been through. Mostly it's a very stable cycle. Whereas in a lot of the emerging markets, you have a much more boom and bust. You have the countries themselves going bust, um, which causes more economic uncertainty and volatility in those individual countries. And so often you'll say, you know, XYZ pension fund will invest 80% in Western markets and 20% maybe in some emerging markets. So they will invest in those markets, but it's a much smaller percentage because it's more volatile. Now, again, having just gone through the, the financial crisis, it seems a bit odd and maybe a bit arrogant for us to be making that distinction because there are lots of Western countries who have gone bust, and we have experienced a lot more volatility um, in the last few years. But, however, the the distinction remains. It's, um, you know, the money gets invested in the space where people are primarily more familiar with and most comfortable with. When I was a little girl, my older sister Karen used to play bank with my sister Jackie and I, (laughs) who were like five years old, and we used Monopoly money at the time, and so we would go to the bank. Karen would open the bank, and we would deposit our bills, and then very quickly she'd close the bank. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we couldn't get our money out of the bank. It was just terrible. But 
For a lot of people today, there is this sense that banks are bad like that. They'll take your money, but forget trying to get it out. And there is a public outcry, a lot of anger about banks, uh, a lot of anger about the investment world, particularly anything with credit default swaps, derivatives, you know, the state of what's happening to countries around the world, the bus. What is your take on what's happening to Europe right now, and what are you concerned about? Well, what's happening to Europe is... Again, we call it very simply, you know, the, the debt crisis generally, the, the government debt crisis. And it is no different in the U.S., uh, which, which we've already talked about. The, the U.S. has um, a deficit, and in order to fund that deficit, they increase the amount that they borrow. <laughs> and, and, and that just increases and increases and increases because we all know that they then have to borrow to pay the interest. And it, it's, it it's, never, the interest it never, is never it, it, but, but let me ask you this. Do you really feel that the interest is ever going to be paid? It's never going to be paid. Come on. You know. Um, really? Well, I think that that is a question about it's my a dynamic in isn't the political it? system. And, um, you know, in watching the debates over the fiscal cliff, it's hard to have a lot of faith in the, in the political system. But the European governments, not all of them, but many of them have some of the same debt issues that the U.S. government has. The difference is that the, our economies are not as big. Their economies are possibly more volatile than the U.S. government, less robust, less stable. And um, those governments, um, that debt is not considered a... It's not reserve currency necessarily, and it's not a safe haven. And the a lot of this is about perception, remember, because right. once once the the general investor population believes that a particular country or entity is not able to pay back its debt, then they no longer allow them to borrow again. And many entities borrow in order to pay back previous borrowings, and so it's a continuous cycle. And if you can't borrow to pay back previous borrowings, then you do ultimately default. And, um, you know, unfortunately, the position we're in for some of these government entities in Europe is, is simply about the perception of the market, about their ability to, to pay back their debt, and about the, the long-term sustainability of... Um, their economies and how much the economies, how much income the economies produce for the governments, and thus how much the how much money the governments have to pay back this debt. Um, and a lot of it's about perception. You know, you get on the wrong side of the market perception, and it takes a while to get back over to the other side. You think Spain is heading toward a currency crash? Well, it, it would be. You know, these guys are part of the euro and. For the moment, the euro is is not going anywhere. That's the current statement. Although I know a lot of us are saying, you know, there's there's a lot of discussion about Greek, the Greek the Greek exit of the euro, and you know how that will happen, whether that will actually happen. I think is still very questionable. But it's about the market saying, okay, I own this Spanish debt, and they owe me. You know, I have a bond. It says that they owe me a hundred at maturity, and um, I might have to end up negotiating with Spain, such that I only get 
you know, 20% or 30% of that money back. And um, that's about, that. we call that a restructuring. And that's what Greece has just gone through. And that's what, you know, some other countries may have to go through. Um, but often, you know, countries go through that restructuring and then they, they relieve the burden of their debt and then they, and then they are stronger again as countries and they're able to then um, have their economies grow and strengthen and then they can come back to the debt markets in a stronger position. It reminds me almost like a managed bankruptcy. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. So many individuals go through it and many individuals have gone through it recently sure. and it is no different for a government or a, a corporate. It's, it's simply, look, you've taken on too much debt. You're currently in a position where you're not growing. Your income isn't growing the way you thought it was going to be. We're going to have to restructure your debt. You're going to go through this bankruptcy. You need to restructure the, the entity, but you can continue operating. You just have to operate under slightly different um, I mean, it's not like the government, you know, when you think about a bankruptcy for a, a corporate, you know, sometimes they just, the company goes away. They don't exist right. anymore, but it's not like Greece is going to go away, <laughs> right? The country still exists. The economy still exists. It's just a matter of managing it, managing through this crisis. Why do you think it's happening to so many countries? Well, it goes back to the irrational exuberance, I think. You know, these economies were growing. People felt wealthier. The governments felt wealthier and able to borrow more and spend more as a result. And, you know, they overreached in their borrowings. I want to talk to you a little bit about the quants. <laughs> Those are the I interviewed guys. Scott Patterson right. when he wrote the quants. I hope it wasn't from, <laughs> from his rainmaking time, but you put in your chapter 12, where are the quants? Listening to the stories, most people would believe that the quants came from Area 52 and are parachuted in and complex issues only. Anyway, other stories have the quants secretly running the bank, so what role do they actually play? All right, the quants do appear like they're Area 52 entities. <laughs> My understanding of the quants based on reading Scott Patterson's book, The Quants, is that these are people that specialize in writing algorithms for computer systems and managing those computer systems so that these software programs are able to make decisions and trades in seconds. Is that, that wrong? Uh, that is one particular type of quant. Okay. And I think the word quant is used in a number of different ways. Again, it goes back to vocabulary. So it's funny because you and I were just having a conversation about quants, and I was pretty sure you were talking about the quants that I worked with, but you were talking about quants that I've never worked with. Um, so we were talking yeah. almost at cross purposes. The, but you've heard of what I described, I, right? What you've just described, it is, it's very common. It's a trading strategy. It's, called a, it's a quantitative trading strategy. Yeah. There are these brilliant individuals who are looking for... Economies of scale? Of, uh, of, not even economies of scale because often they're, they're looking for patterns that they can then identify and program a way to make money from a particular pattern that they see in price movements. And once they can find that, these relationships, they can identify them and then program um, a model that, I, you know, that looks for it, that identifies it, and then makes money out of it. Once you can do that, often just the fact that you're now trading in that space makes that relationship go away. So it's, um, it's one of the theories 
within the financial markets, which is that there, if there's money to be made, um, then if everybody knows about it, then they, let's say, look, this pro- this particular stock is way undervalued if you look at all of these bits. Well, if everybody knows about it, then everybody tries to buy it and the stock price goes up and then the value is gone. But if you can do just a little bit of investing here and a little bit of investing there and nobody really notices, then you can keep the value to yourself as the, um, as the price goes up. I'm sure the quants are going to, anybody, any quant listening to this is going to say, no, that's not exactly how it works, but I'm trying to simplify it. That, that particular type of trading is not the quant that I worked with on the trading floor. The quants that we had on the trading floor were those people who helped build the models to help price and value and manage risk. And um, again, pricing and valuing and modeling and managing risk is not straightforward. And it does require, um, it is complicated and it requires someone who can come in and actually um, put together the the complex formula that helps to um, price and and manage and identify risk. Um, the the I guess a simple um, example of that is let's say you own a share price, and the question is, I own this share. If I hold this share, this particular stock for the next year how much money could I possibly lose, right? That's not, that's trying to identify how much risk I have. So I own this share. It's worth 10 today. How much money could I lose over the next year? And what a quant can help do is look at some historical statistics and help say, well, look, based on what's happened to this share price over the last few years, we can tell you that, you know, 95% of the time, the share price never went below 5 so in 95% of the cases, we don't expect that you could lose more than five, right? Although it's worth 10 today, we don't expect that, you know, you can lose more than five. And that's, that's trying to help me identify how much money I have at risk, right? And, it, you know, there's a lot of math and analysis and statistics that go into coming up with that number to help me identify and manage that risk. But it is something, it's a crucial, crucial part of the financial markets. So the quants in this context are much more involved in trading than it appears. It's not just the original type of quants I was talking about. No. Often they'll sit on the trading floor with the traders Mm -hmm. and work with them. Um, Sometimes they'll, you know, sit on a back room and because they need quiet to kind of work through some of these models and and situations. Um, The example I gave was very, very simple. And there are many more examples that are much more complicated. so it's not as straightforward always as I described, um, but they play a very crucial role in the financial markets. Yeah, you had put on page 266, some news programs have even declared that financial markets are run by the quants. I think that that came about through Scott Peterson's book, The Quants. Possibly. And, and the role of high-frequency trading and the relationship of the quants to that. Yeah, Given where you've been and where you are now and the completion of this book, do you believe that there are still exists a free market? Yes, I certainly do. Absolutely. Not do you believe in the free market. Do you know what I'm saying? There is, 
There is. Is there really a free market? Yes, there is. And no one, even all these, you know, you can have the most, the brightest people in the world. No one can tell you what the price of a share is going to be tomorrow, right? Unless, of course, they have some insider information, in which case they're not supposed to use that insider information, and it should be illegal, right? Because they're not supposed to. We're all supposed to be on a, have a fair playing ground. Um, but no one can tell you what the price of something's going to be tomorrow. It can go up. It can go down. There are so many factors that come into play that there is no such thing as, as free money <laughs> and there is no guaranteed money-making product. You, will, you take risk in every... Um, in you know, every time you enter the financial markets, um, and you know, risk it can go two ways. You take risk, and you can have a great return. But you take risk, you can also have a great loss, and so they go hand in hand. The high frequency trading part. Are you familiar with it? Have you heard of it? I'm I'm aware of it. It's not a space I've I've spent a lot of time in. It's primarily in the equity space. I would say my expertise and most of my trading was was in the fixed income space. Um, high frequency trading occurs primarily, my understanding again, in the um, on the exchange traded stock markets. And they are, so that's the equity markets. And I know that there's a lot of controversy around them. You know, on the one hand, they are said to provide a lot of liquidity to the marketplace, meaning that there are more trades that are able to go through and liquidity should make markets more efficient, whether that's the case in this scenario or not, is debatable because there is also there are also claims that there there is market manipulation in some of the techniques that are used. Um, so I think they are controversial for and I think, from my understanding, that they're controversial with good reason, I think. Would you talk more about the providing liquidity? I think that there's a part of it that's confusing. It sounds obvious what it is, but it's not. The primary role of a bank is to provide liquidity. And, and so what a bank primarily does is um, it, uh, it says to its clients, whatever trade you want to do in these particular products, will do for you. So you, the client, say to the bank, look, I want to buy X number of this bond. And the bank says, okay, I'll sell it to you at this price. Or you say, I want to sell um, you know, X number of these shares. And the bank says, okay, I'll buy it from you at this price. Liquidity is the fact that a bank will put a price on whatever trade you want to do in this stated list of products. So when I say that, I'm qualifying because not all banks will put a price on all products. So some banks will, you know, trade bonds, but not not stocks or vice versa, possibly. And so um, liquidity is the fact that whenever you want to sell your shares or your bonds, whatever investments you've got, you can go to the bank and get a price for it. You may not like the price, but there is a price there. Now, the best example for individuals is to think about what happened in the housing market, right? We went through a period of high, high liquidity in the housing market in 04, 05, 06. If you wanted to sell your house, there was someone there to buy it, always. <laughs> and then 07, 08, 09, you try to sell your house and nobody comes to view it. 
that, make, that, that house is now highly illiquid, right? So um, it's about the number of trades that occur each day and, the, and whether or not someone is there prepared to put a price. So in the housing market, there is no one backstopping the housing market. There is no, no entity providing liquidity to, to you as the house owner um, because, you know, you try to sell it in, you know, 08, 09 and nobody's buying. Whereas if you own a share or a bond and you want to sell it or you want to, you know, you want to turn around and buy it, whatever you're looking to do, the banks are providing a price. And is that's it, what liquidity isn't is. Isn't it then totally invoked based on perception too? Doesn't perception and liquidity have a relationship together? Yeah, I, I mean... Or is it all bank-induced? Is liquidity a bank-induced function? No, it's a service that they provide. So think about it. In, in a market where, in 2009, there was far less liquidity in the financial markets, and that meant there were less people buying and selling financial right. products. One of the reasons for that is because many people had bought products with a value of 10 a few years before, and when they go to sell it, it's now worth three. Right. And so people are sitting there saying, ah, I'm not going to sell this because I'm going to lose set. What's the point? Um, and so less people looking to make trades. Um, the banks, on the other hand, were their job in that time period was to provide prices to their clients. Again, the clients didn't always like the prices because the bank said, look, if I'm going to buy this, I'll buy it for three. You know, I'm putting a price. Um, and the clients were like, well, that's, that's not accept. That's, you know, that's terrible. But the bank said, but I have the risk because now I buy it for three. There's nobody else who wants to buy it. <laughs> it may be worth zero. I don't know. Right? So they were, the bank was taking the risk. Um, and that is a service that banks provide to their clients. Again, you may not like the price. It's like going to a used car dealership. <laughs> you know, you may not like the price he's willing to pay for your old car, but he will put a price on it. Got it. You're providing a frame of reference in something that's considered very dark, very opaque, very dangerous. The more mysterious it is, the more the public's upset. And, you know, you got a public that, self-included, just from my own lack of information and experience that finds banks accountable for all kinds of stuff that shouldn't be going on and most of the financial system a big fraud. That's where a lot of people come from now. And obviously it's shades of gray, right? I would like to talk about the exchanges, which I thought was very interesting. The exchange broker and the exchange system. And I thought maybe you could talk a little bit about that. What is it? If I were an academic, the description of the interworkings of these different markets. Um, it's called market microstructure. <laughs> As I'm not an academic, uh, I didn't use that term in my book. And in fact, I don't think I was aware of that term until after I wrote the book and someone said, oh, you've written a book about market microstructure. And I said, oh, really? Did I? I just, that's great. I didn't know that. That's good. The, um, and, and thus shows you the, there's a big divide between practice and academia in many cases. And it comes from both sides, right? But the way that trades actually occur, um, there are two big distinctions that we make in the world of trading. And one is whether a product trades on an exchange, and the other is whether a product tra trades over the counter. And 
the only, I mean, the big picture distinction is generally most shares trade on exchanges and most fixed income products, so that's bonds and loans, trade over the counter. And so to give you an example of that distinction, and for most people, the, the, the distinction, um, it's not necessarily always even visible because in many cases, for, for almost everyone, you still have to go to somebody, you have to go to a financial institution and ask for a price, whether it's for a, a bond or a stock. Um, but, and they often are the entities that then deal either with the over-the-counter trading or with the exchange trading. Um, so from, often from the client's perspective, it's not necessarily different in terms of how they get a price. Um, but one way to, to put it is that in exchange trading, every transaction that occurs for a particular product that, that is listed on an exchange must be reported to the exchange. And so every share trade that occurs in IBM is reported to, I believe, the New York Stock Exchange. Um, and so the New York Stock Exchange has a record of every trade that's occurred on the IBM shares, every price where IBM shares have traded. And it's like a repository of, of, of information. Um, whereas in the fixed income marketplace, there is not necessarily a central repository or requirement, reporting requirement. So, um, you know, bonds on IBM, you know, debt that IBM has issued doesn't necessarily get reported. Any transaction, you know, somebody bought a bond, somebody sold a bond at this price or on this notional amount, you know, could have been with a bunch of different banks, just like that IBM share price could have been with a bunch of share trade could have been with a bunch of different banks. But for the bond, it doesn't necessarily get reported into a central place. Um, and so as a result, and there's a lot of other distinctions to be made, but I don't want to go into too much detail. But those that difference that I've just described has resulted in a situation where people feel that products that trade on exchanges are more transparent and more visible because the exchanges produce all these statistics about the number of trades and the price where it traded, whereas there's not necessarily a central repository that's providing this transparency about the amount of trades on the bonds and then the prices where they were traded. Do you think there should be? There is no question that transparency is valuable in the financial markets. And there's been a big push over the last five years to make all markets more transparent. Part of the making markets more transparent has been made easier because today a lot of trading occurs electronically, um, both exchange and over the counter, where you basically, you look, at, you look on your computer, you look at the product, you look at the price where you can buy it or sell it, and you get to execute on, the, on your computer. You know, it's like Amazon or eBay. <laughs> You know, I want to sell this, I'll sell it at this price, or I want to buy this, I'll buy it at this price. eBay is like a little electronic market, right? right? It's not a financial market, but it's a market, just just the same. Do you trade today? No. For, for yourself? <laughs> no, I don't trade for myself. Although, um, it's funny that you ask, because I've just had this conversation with my husband about whether, <laughs> about why I don't trade um, anymore. And um, May I ask you why? <laughs> 
Can you well, continue that yeah, conversation? So I, I, um, I traded for a bank, right? I wasn't actually trading for myself. I was a trader for a large institution. It was, I was a market maker. Um, and uh, I found it to be very exciting and very fun, but also very, very draining, very stressful. You are constantly focused on the prices and the products on the marketplace, and you cannot take your eye off the ball. Um, you know, and my, everybody has a particular style of trading. Do you want to be a day trader? So you, you put on trades, you know, throughout the day, and then you close out all your positions at the end of the day so that you can go to sleep and not worry? Or do you have a long-term view, and so you put on positions um, that will make you money over the next few months or the next few you know, years, for example? There's a bunch of different styles to trading. Um, personally, I found trading, it's very intense. It is very focused, and you have to be continually aware of what's going on in the financial markets. You have to be reviewing and researching all the time. Um, and it's, I think it's, a, it's more of a lifestyle question. It's, um, it was very exciting and it was very fun when I did it. And I would say that I'm happy that I did it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy that I did it. I'm glad You're happy I did that it. you're looking back. I'm glad that I'm happy to be looking back. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Has anybody asked you to trade for them? I used to get um, have a bunch of conversations like this when I first when I first left the trading floor where people were like, "What are you doing? Why aren't you doing X? Or why aren't you setting up a hedge fund? Or why aren't you doing this?" And I thought, you know, the fact is that that um, I was looking for something different. I was looking for a lifestyle change, and uh, I liked education. I liked educating people, and I set up a business around education. And it's been it's a very gratifying. Very different, but very gratifying experience. Talk a little bit about the dark pools of liquidity. It sounds like we're entering the dark Vader. <laughs> yeah, you know, they do. They what is this dark pools of liquidity? Oh, my God, I feel like I'm going into the dark zone. Yes, although on your website you have a starship button, right? <laughs> so to be fair... Um, uh, you know, you've got the enterprise button. Hey, she just zang me. <laughs> <laughs> I just got zung. So um, dark pools of liquidity are interesting, and they go back to the topic we were discussing about exchange trading versus over-the-counter trading. And dark pools of liquidity occur in the world of exchange trading. And what, what happens is that when a client, when, 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 when anyone wants to buy or sell a, a share, um, you can put up on it, let's say on an electronic system, you can put up, I want to buy X number of shares at this price, or I want to sh- sell X number of shares at this price. And what the banks, what some of the big banks realized is that they had enough client demand such that if they, if they pool, pooled, pulled all of that client demand into one system and matched the guys that wanted to buy with the guys that wanted to sell, then within the bank's own client network, they could match the buyers and sellers of particular shares because they had so many clients. And as a result, while those share transactions get um, reported and published 
on the exchanges, they don't go outside of the bank's own network. So it's not it's transactions that occur that haven't occurred in a more public manner. So it's not this bank has client A who wants to buy, and this bank has client B who wants to sell, and they meet on the exchange. It's not like that. It's that the bank, it's one bank has client A and client B, and the bank can meet, make those, make the the demand and supply meet. And um, the I don't know that there's necessarily a lot of concern around it, but what it does is it says. We used to believe that the exchange-traded products were very visible, very transparent, and although these transactions are still being reported to the exchange, we can't see them happening in the first place because they're happening in the same ecosystem. Yes, they're happening. It, very oh, perfect. You see, you should have written the book. <laughs> no, I'm glad I didn't. I would need like Transylvanian therapy or some type of uh, I don't know some type of brain surgery because it's so complex. It is my world, and so when I wrote the book, the effort that it takes to make it as basic as I can, because my, I'm used to, you know, having sat on the floor, I'm used to the vocabulary, the acronyms, the shorthand, and the language, the, the specific language we speak, which is which helps us to make our communication concise and precise and meaningful. In a very short period of time, because there's, you know, markets are moving. You're either making money, you're losing money. You need to be quick and you need to be fast. And yet, when I moved into the, you know, when I built a business around education, one of the roles that we play, what was very clear is that, you know, that language, which is precise and concise, is not that valuable for most people. And you need to explain it and use real words. And so, in I wrote a book, which I thought originally was, "Look, this is about using real words. We're just going to tell it like it is. It's just sort of a casual language," and and many people see it that way. That it's you know the very fundamental, the very basic. I'm handholding people through, but if you're not in the world of finance, it's still so foreign. And so, for many people, I've said, "Look, use the book as a handbook. Don't feel that you necessarily have to read it all the way through." You know, use it as a handbook. Read the little gray boxes. They tell funny stories. You know, kind of get yourself. It's immersion. By it, it. Yeah. it requires a kind of、uh, well for someone outside of finance. I found that the first part I had to really throw myself in. It was immersion. Even the part about the role of the bank, which would seem obvious to anybody, I never thought of the bank as an intermediary. Right. I never knew the bank was an intermediary、yeah. and providing liquidity, taking risk. That this has much deeper meaning. I actually wish you could explain the bank as an intermediary because that was the first revelation to me of the book. <laughs> so, I guess very simply, if you most people who are comfortable with the concept that they can go to the bank and deposit their money are also aware that you can go to the bank and borrow money. And so, if you think about that. What the bank is doing is that they are—they're intermediating between those people who have money to deposit and those people who want to borrow money. So they sit in the middle. So the bank says, "Okay, I'll take in those deposits, and I'll turn around and I'll use some of that money 
to lend to the people who need money. And that is the most basic intermediation that a bank does. And that's your classic savings and loans, you know, for the American population. That's your classic savings and loan um, entity, which takes in savings and turns around and gives out, I think a lot of those savings and loans were around mortgages, but takes in deposits and turns around and gives out a loan on the other side. That's your classic intermediation by a bank. Um, If you then take it one step further away from deposits and loans and then say, well, what about stocks or bonds? Basically, the bank sits there and says, okay, I've got a client over here who wants to buy something. Now I'm going to go out and find a client who's prepared to sell it. And I'm going to sit in the middle, Um, whether that's a bond or a stock or a currency transaction. And if the bank can't immediately find those two sides, the bank sits on, you know, the bank does the transaction with you and sits on it until they can find the other side. Again, possibly some people will take huge exception with this analogy, but the used car dealership, (laughs) right? He takes your, he buys your old car from you, even though he doesn't yet know who's going to, who he's going to be able to sell it onto, but he'll buy it and he'll hold it. He then has the risk that nobody wants to buy it or that the price that he put on it is higher than the price where he can sell it. That's a, he's an, he's an intermediary. I don't think many of us think of the role of the bank as that. We see it much more simply. No. And I think, um, in the, you know, in the wall street and financial market, um, in the kind of global financial market world, that is the primary role of the bank. Now, for most of us, we go to the bank, we deposit our checks, we pay our bills, we get a checking account, we get a savings account. Again, that's another service. That's a retail service. But in the Wall Street world, in the financial markets world, where the clients are less about individuals and more about institutions, both corporates and other financial institutions, the service that a bank provides is more than just having a bank account. It's it's about providing this intermediation and this liquidity in the financial market. It's a whole. It's a whole, whole other world. world. It's a whole. It's a totally world. different world. And as a matter of fact, I would say most of us have the orientation of retail. Yeah. The retail scenario is what a bank is, but the business that a bank is in is in what? Being an intermediary. What business Providing are a banks in? It's a service provider. Banks yeah, but provide I mean, a service. You know when? Well, they're not producing anything, right? They're not. They're not building widgets. They're not providing. Um, it, you know, they're not building programs. They're not, um, uh, you know, they're not flying you from one place to another. They are providing a service, and they get paid for their for that service. That's how they make money. They are service providers. Hmm. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. No matter what the state of the economy is, there will always be time honored traditions and special events. The Sterling Hut has been in business since 2008, offering a wide range of fantastic sterling silver products, including finely crafted mint julep cups, personalized baby shower gifts, photo albums, exquisite jewelry boxes and awards, and so much more. The Sterling Hut is an authorized Silver Star international reseller of fine silver products and anniversary gifts. The business is owned by Jewel and Bob Howard. If you would be interested in buying someone a gift of pure sterling silver or sterling plated silver, 
you can call 1-888-819-1009. Get a 15% discount by going to the Sterling Hut. The Sterling, S-T-E-R-L-I-N-G, Hut, H-U-T, dot com, and saying it's rainmaking time. They will honor a 15% discount for you. Beautiful sterling silver gifts for all of life's occasions. Manufactured in Italy and handcrafted by skilled artisans. They can also be engraved in sterling picture frames, oval and rectangular silver trays, champagne ice buckets, silver goblets, coffee and tea service, coffee pots, silver mugs, candelabras, and silver jewelry unrivaled in design and style. Go to the Sterling Hut at sterlinghut.com. And back to the show. There was a book called The Marketing Imagination. It was written many years ago by Ted Levitt. He brought up an analogy of how when the railroads thought of themselves, what business that they were in, and they had this opportunity to be involved in other methods of transportation, that they didn't want to be involved because they didn't see themselves in the transportation business. They saw themselves in the railroad business. (laughs) (laughs) And so when their time came to be part of other methods of transportation, it was missed. And so for years, I've always wondered, you know, what business are people in? What business is this, really? What business are banks in? (laughs) But when you say service provider, yes. But I wonder what business they view themselves to be in. Ah, that's a good question. I think from the outside looking in, often people say that they're in the business of making money. (laughs) Clearly. (laughs) Which, well, and you see the distinction between being a service provider and making money. Um, I, to some extent, I believe that language is very powerful and how you think of yourself is kind of shapes what you do and how you go about doing it. So, for example, when I first started trading, we weren't called traders. We were called risk managers. In fact, I wasn't even 100% sure who these traders were because actually it turns out that I was a risk manager. <laughs> <laughs> but most other banks called the role I was in trading. Um, and today it's very clear I was a trader, but I thought my job was managing <coughs> risk because I was a risk manager. Um, and I think that says a lot about the culture that I was in. I was in a risk management culture. I wasn't in a risk-taking culture, which is they're, they're different. And um, if you believe you're in a service-providing space, then I think you behave differently than if you're in a place where you make money. (laughs) Truly. So um, how they see themselves, I think, is important. But ultimately, you know, fundamentally, these big banks, these major dealers are in the business of providing a service. What do you think about Dr. Muhammad Yunus, who founded the Grameen Bank? Are you familiar at all with him? I'm not. Sorry. He, uh, no, that's okay. He, uh, about 28 years ago, a man from Bangladesh started to do these microloans and realized that the whole issue of credit was a barrier to entrepreneurs and new businesses starting in the villages of Bangladesh. And he started to give these microloans to women in the villages to start their businesses because the money changers were charging so much money they could never get ahead. And it started to improve communities and businesses started to grow and he went to the government and said, I want to do this on a big scale. Obviously, you don't have to have collateral to get credit. I'm issuing credit all the time. I'm giving them these loans. 
And so he started the Grameen Bank and built it to a several billion dollar bank. He got the Nobel Prize in 2006. And then the government came to him a year ago, a year, a year and a half ago, and said, you're too old, and kicked him out of the bank and retained the principal. It grew, yeah, it grew into. And one of the things he's known for is how he established a new organism of bank that was social venture oriented, commitment oriented, yet it bypassed the criteria that you have to have collateral to get a loan. Since that governs the retail side of the banking, he proved that it could be done. Now, yes, it's done in developing nations. The sentiment is different. The training is different. People were trained, but he did it. In a way, it's a new world. People say banks are corrupt and the financial system is corrupt and most of the products are really corrupted and have been co-opted. There's still a place to bridge finance, banking, and social capital to do great things. Even with a government that came in and usurped this man's baby, this work that he did, this body of work. There's something in the insurance industry. I'm not sure if you've heard of it here or when you were in the United States full-time, if you had heard of it, but it's called a life settlement. Are you familiar with it? It's considered a financial derivative in the insurance industry that began at the time when AIDS started to become known in the early time in which AIDS just took off in America. The insurance companies said, look, what we're going to do is we're going to come to these clients and we're going to give them whatever, 30 or 40% of their insurance policies, they're going to die anyway. And we're going to let them cash out and we'll take the 60 or 70%. And that's where it kind of began. But what started to happen is a lot of insurance providers started to provide these life settlement packages where people, once they're 65 years old or 67 years old, could sign up, could get life insurance, buy a life policy, have investors in on it, a whole team of lawyers in on it, and in two and a half years, hold the insurance policy and cash out. And I was taken to a Beverly Hills firm in 2008 where one of the top insurance providers in the country had a division of people that were doing this to top A-rated insurance companies. Let's say I brought somebody in who's 67 years old. They see a doctor, they're in good health. They buy a policy. They have beneficiaries on the policies. And in two and a half years, the agent that signed that person up sells the policy. The person didn't die. And they give the person X amount of money and they hold the rest until the person dies. And then they start trading it or selling it or buying it. It's a kind of derivative. Mm -hmm. However, the insurance companies in this scenario don't know that one person can have 10 policies. That insurance agent who walked me in there put me in front of 10 different top A-rated companies had a whole team behind him that was going to write hundreds and millions of dollars of life insurance, okay, for this 67-year-old person and give them a little sliver of it in two and a half years after the policy was held and then take it and sell it again and again and again. But the insurance companies didn't know. It wasn't one policy. There were 10 insurance companies on one person's name. Big, big ordeal. 
in this context, which is very different than the other things you've been talking about that are more obvious, this to me is a defilement of the insurance industry. The insurance companies don't know this. They don't know they're being fleeced. Universities are involved in this to raise money. I can't tell you, this guy explained to me the kind of people that are involved all over the country that are using this mechanism to raise hundreds of millions and billions of dollars. Now, is that a derivative? They call this life settlement a kind of derivative. Well, I'm not aware of that at all. Okay. Um, What you've described sounds fascinating. It's a real story because I was brought in. Yeah, I I know that a few years ago there was some discussion about banks trading insurance derivatives and looking at that market as a possible new derivatives market. But I also am aware that the people that were looking at that um, are no longer looking at it, that they didn't, that they decided it wasn't a, a market that was going to be either large enough or big enough or um, it wasn't a product that the, the banks were interested in being a part of. I'm, I'm not a, I'm, yeah. it, it's not a space I know very much about, I'm okay. afraid. I mean, what I can say is that, um, it's called a death bond, by the way. Right. I mean, what, what I can say is that, um, you know, recently I've heard a lot of, uh, there's a lot of debate about, you know, morality and integrity and question marks over the ethics around the, the banking and the financial community. And there was a statement made recently which, um, which went along the lines of, we're no longer going to choose um, profits over integrity. Uh, as and I that that the line struck me because I thought, gosh, I, I didn't realize we had to make a choice <laughs> of profits versus of one versus the other. I mean, the fact is that I think there are a lot of businesses that operate um, with integrity and can still be profitable, and um, and I think that oh, some of the stories that you were telling are great stories about businesses that have operated with integrity and, 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 and still been profitable entities that there is, you don't necessarily have to make a choice of one versus the other. Um, and another term is socially responsible capitalism. Yeah, I believe in capitalism, but I also, you know, socially responsible capitalism is something that we probably need to be thinking more of when we make decisions. Um, and certainly the, the crisis has made a lot of people ponder that issue and think about it a bit more. Because I think, again, irrational exuberance, that period of bull market, everybody's making money. Uh, it was um, decisions became very clouded, you know, what the right decision was. Um, there were lots of irrational decisions being made. And I think that um, today there's a lot of rethink about how we do business and we don't have to choose one versus the other when we're talking about integrity versus profits. We shouldn't have to anyway. And um, commercially, sorry, socially responsible capitalism, I think is something that we should all be considering. Do you think that it's possible inside the financial system, the culture of winner take all and whatever it takes to win that that often is associated with a culture of finance? That's just in there. It's not just finance. No, it's it's, everything. It's sports, it's it's, right. You know, 
particularly in America, it is a very strong driver of the American individual and the American economy, which is, um, you know, the superstar culture. I can be a superstar. I can, you know, and if I'm a superstar, I get everything or anything I want. And, and that translates to how people are paid in most businesses. You know, um, there's been a lot of research around the superstar culture and it's very interesting. And, um, whether this is true or not, some of the research says that, you know, a lot of this culture kind of started developing around 30 or so years ago, whereas prior to 30 years ago, um, the difference between the top earner and the average earner was maybe a hundred percent. Whereas today in some institution, in some industries, the difference between the top earner and the average earner is, you know, as much as 600% or 900%. It's massive multiples. And, um, it, it does create uh, a world where we're all, lots of people are striving to be that, that superstar. Um, and there are lots of things about that culture which are, I think, dangerous and, and damaging. But another thing to be aware of is how, and, and related, is how we incentivize people. You know, how we, you're encouraged, you, you know, you make more money by taking more risk. Um, and... If you think about risk and return in the financial markets, you know, it, it can go wrong as well as go right. So you're incentivized to take that risk um, because if, if you win, then you get paid more and then you're a superstar. Um, but if you lose, um, you know, the bank loses. It's almost, <laughs> um, it's a little off kilter, I think. So it's, it's just something to be aware of about how the world works. And it's, it's not just in finance. Lots of industries operate that way. Clearly, looking at Lance Armstrong, who we're talking about, yeah, too. I well, mean, there, look, there, there you, you go. go. Yeah, you know. there you go. What's new for you? What's next for you? What is coming up for you? Is there anything in particular? Are you going to be speaking anywhere? Yeah, I've, um, I mean, with the book, I've been doing a lot of um, university lecturing, uh, which has been great fun, um, helping uh, talking to grads or upcoming grads and, you know, MBA programs or undergraduate programs who are interested in working in finance, talking about uh, the different roles and responsibilities in finance and, um, you know, different things they need to be aware of and some of the decisions they make as individuals. And, and again, it, often it does come down to the topic of ethics and um, what that means when you're working and, and what things you need to consider. Um, uh my business, you know, we still run a lot of the training programs. We still act as expert witness in a lot of litigation, which is fascinating. Um, and um, I'm looking at a bunch of um, non-executive directorships for some some. Want to sit companies. on some boards? Want to sit on some boards? Um, I sit on some charity boards now, and I'm looking at some other, sitting on some other financial institution boards, which will be a lot of fun. Hoping, hoping that I have, I have something to add, you know, that my experience and my knowledge of the space is, you know, valuable, that we help, help move in the right direction. Well, I'm really glad that you wrote this book and that you took the time to bring it to us, how the trading floor really works. And I'm sure it was a big ordeal to write. I can't even imagine after reading it, what it was like to put it together. <laughs> You know, when Wiley, the publisher, said, um, 
you know, Terry, we'd like you to write this book, uh, or we'd like you to write a book. What topic would you like to write on? And I, I thought about it, and I, you know, I let my ego run away with me. I said, oh, a book, how exciting. I'm going to write a book, you know. <laughs> and not once did I actually consider that there are people who take sabbaticals to write a book. They actually take a year or two off to write a book. And there I was thinking I was just going to do it in my free time. I had a my third baby. I was in the hospital typing away. I got through chapter three and, and I thought, oh, this is so easy. And all of a sudden <laughs> I hit the big block. <laughs> and I thought, oh my, this is maybe a little bit more challenging than I thought it was going to be. I have so much respect for authors today. So much respect. It is time consuming, getting it right, getting it accurate, getting it consistent, getting it at the same level, making sure that you carry the reader with you, that you don't lose them halfway through. It is... Um, it's a real skill and I have huge, huge respect for authors today. It was a lot of fun to do. Um, not a hundred percent sure that it is my future career path. Um, I don't <laughs> see many more books being produced, um, but it was great fun to do. And it's been great hearing all the responses from people, um, and helping them understand. And that's been a lot of fun. It's very gratifying. Well, I want to thank Bob and Jewel Howard from the Sterling Hut who sponsored this interview in London today with Terry Duyon, the author of How the Trading Floor Really Works. And you can go to the Sterling Hut at thesterlinghut.com. You can also see the Sterling Hut, their banner on its rainmaking time on the right-hand side of the site. In a future date, Terry, I'd like to invite you to be on a panel with different people from your industry commenting on how the world is turning in finance. Sounds great. Sounds like fun. And then I want to thank you for your time. Tell people how they can find your website. It's my name, actually. So it's Terry Duhon, T-E-R-R-I-D-U-H-O-N dot co. And that's because someone else that I don't know owns dot com. <laughs> now, seriously. They I am. It's Terry Duhon dot co. I didn't even know that there were other Terry Duhons in the world um, because <laughs> it's such a unique name. It's a Cajun name. Um, but someone in Texas, can you believe it, owns Terry Duhon dot com. So I am Terry Duhon dot co and the book's there. And... Um, it's on Amazon, and I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you so much. Great. It's rainmaking time. <laughs>